This episode of the Terminal Value Podcast is sponsored by me. I'm looking to help a thousand people build an affiliate marketing business that can enable them to pursue their passions and make a real difference in the world. The program my mentor and I created is based on tested content that has generated multiple seven-figure producers. It doesn't involve any paid advertising, doesn't require any selling, and 90% of the work is done for you. But wait, there's more. The way we do it is different from other people out there. Instead of recruiting you to build my list in exchange for a commission, I'm going to help you learn how to build your own list while growing your affiliate business so you have an asset that can create value for you every day, week, month, and year of your life. If this sounds interesting, please visit www.dougbusiness.com to access the free training we created that explains how it all works. Hey, welcome to Terminal Value. So everything that I do here is based on one big question, and that is, how do growth-oriented people overcome the psychotic vortex of society to create a life of value and need? That is the question, and I am here to bring you the answer. My name is Doug Utberg, and this is Terminal Value. I publish new content every week, so make sure to hit the subscribe button and turn on notifications, and then share your thoughts on each episode through social media and make sure to tag me so that I will know what to create for you. We have Dr. L. Carol Scott with us today. And what we're going to be talking about is personal development do-overs. And that may sound a little weird, but I'm just going to unpack it for everybody for a second. One of the things that Dr. Scott has found in her research is that the first seven years of a person's life has a tremendous impact on the traumas, neuroses, other things that they carry forward into their adulthood, which probably sounds like a bummer, except there are ways to do a personal development do-over, which we are going to be talking about today. So Dr. Scott, please introduce yourself. Thank you so much for having me, Doug. I appreciate it. I'm a developmental psychologist, which means I studied child development and made it my career, how children grow up to be who they are as adults. Yep. And what I have learned is the first seven years are the time in which we are really trying out a personality. We're figuring out who we are. We're trying out all the ways to get along with other people. And we have some natural attributes. We have some natural things we try out. So normal for newborn infants to trust people to take care of them. They yep. can't even think about it yet, but they have to trust people to take care of them because they can't take care of themselves. So we learn our baseline for trusting other people to meet our needs when we're like birth to six months old. But we don't remember any of that when we're 25, 35, 55. And we don't necessarily recognize that how trust operates in our adult relationships comes from those first six months. But it, and it. so I take people back to those periods when they were developing things like trust, self-expression, play and imagination, the skill to negotiate to get what you want. Those are all preschool things. So when we go back to preschool and we say, you can't go back and be four again, but how can you redo what a four-year-old does? around learning negotiation now at your age as an adult. Oh, that's really interesting. Okay, so let's keep going down the rabbit hole a little All right. bit. So the seven, what I call the success strategies, the self-aware uh -huh. success strategies that we come out of our early childhood with are trust, what I call independence, which is the ability to know who you are and express it as a unique individual. Yep. Faith, which is pretend. 
play, imagination, the ability to believe in things that you can't see. Then negotiation, four-year-olds learn how to negotiate. Five-year-olds are the strategic planners of the early childhood world. They are the ones that have vision and they like to enroll people in doing their vision with them. Uh -huh. Then at six, compromise, learning how to get along in the wider world where there's more people wanting more things. And at seven, acceptance, learning to let life be the up and down that it is and still keep going, even when things seem tough. Got it. Okay. And so now let's walk through, how do we, let's hypothetically say that we're talking about somebody who's 45 years old, like myself, you know, hypothetically who, speaking, yeah, hypothetically speaking, and you're very much in the middle age category and you're trying to use so to implement some of these things that you're talking about to, to really go on a definitive path of self-improvement because at least one of the things that I've noticed, I actually just went through a six-week module of Shazad Shamin's uh, Intelligence PQ course. And I think it sounds like it's similar, but I'm really interested to see where the differences are because the big thing that I took out of PQ was that, of course, the wrapper behind a lot of the stuff was a little different, but the basics were very similar, which is that the circumstances are neutral. Every circumstance offers the, you know, has within it a gift. And a lot of it is about changing your own personal frame. But the real difference is the methodology of actively practicing that so it becomes a habit. Just because you left brain an idea like that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be able to put it into practice. Oh, amen. Amen. <laughs> That's right. And particularly the aspects of getting along with people that we develop before we can remember. So before four, five uh -huh. years of age, you don't have enough cognitive stuff up here. You don't have enough mental mapping yeah. in your brain to remember much of what happens to you because everything is very sensory based up until you're about three and you start really thinking in language then. Yeah. So all of that stuff that happens, and by the way, 85% of your brain gets wired up from birth to age three to coincidentally. Not. So you don't you've literally been wired to be the person that you are and you can't remember any of it. So I think those first three success strategies of trust, independence, and faith are a really fertile ground for this work. Yeah. And I always start there with people to find out we assess how's your trust operating now in relationships with other people. What do you do with trust now? How do you think about it? And what do you do to get your needs met? Because for an infant, a newborn infant, it's really about your needs. Yeah. And when you're an infant, your needs are pretty simple. You need somebody to feed you and change your wet diaper and rock you to sleep when you're cranky. Exactly. Hard. But when you're an adult, the things you need from other people are a bit more complicated. You need validation. You need to be seen for who you are, you need to respect you by listening to you without interrupting you. You need things that are more interpersonal than simply getting your diaper changed. Right? Yeah, exactly. And so do you know what those things are is where we start. Do you know what you need and who is meeting that need for you right now? Once you can identify, well, yeah, I do really, I need somebody who will kick me in the seat of my pants when I'm being on the pity pot. Uh -huh. I need a friend who's willing to say the hard thing to me. I need somebody who will just listen to me when I go completely off the rails and I'm a lunatic about something. I need somebody to listen to me without trying to fix me. You, once you know those things, well, then the other question becomes who's doing it? Yeah. And how is that in relationship to the important connections in your life? So if you make a list of these are 10 things I know I need, and I look, I make a note of next to each one of those 10 things, who's somebody I know I get this from? and my spouse isn't anywhere on the list. That's a wake-up call. Why am I not getting any of my needs met by my spouse? Maybe because I haven't bothered to say what they are and to ask and to talk about getting my needs met by this very important person in my life.
So we unpack what is the way you learn it when you're little and what's the mechanism by which you learn litter. And then what does that look like for you now? Okay. And I think this kind of thing is, and I'm imputing a little bit of my own personal bias here, but I think this kind of thing is really important just because I feel like there's been almost what I've called a psychopathic vortex that's evolved in society, which is where there's like this hyper pursuit of influence, money, and power that I think has caused a lot of people to really disconnect from some of those fundamental things. And I think that reconnecting with that, because of course the, at least my observation is that a great many people who have, who again, have you do this, this over pursuit of money, influence, and power, it's usually because of some kind of pathological need for external validation, which ultimately is always just pushing a rock up a hill. No matter how high you push the rock, you never get to the top of the hill, never have validation because somebody else always has more. This is the, the Buddhist enlightenment. You spend all your life trying to, trying to accumulate all these assets. And then at some point you reach enlightenment and figure out, okay, well, I don't need any of this stuff. <laughs> what I really need is good relationships with people in my the, life. The, what which, really matters. Exactly. Yeah. What I really need is good relationships, a place to eat, sleep, and cook. And I can do all of that inside a 500 square foot apartment. And so I think that's a corollary, at least what I'm hearing. And again, I may be overlaying some of my own biases on here, but I'd like to get your thoughts or reaction there. I really do think that the more we frame our happiness around things like things, having more money, having more stuff, having more space, having more authority or being better known, having more influence. As long as we think that those are the things that make us happy, we're going to keep scrambling after all that stuff and never being happy. Because what we are is a tribal people. We are a, an interpersonal species. We are meant to interact with each other. We are meant to support each other. And we're meant to express ourselves and be seen for who we are. And so when we're not doing any of that, we're not happy. We're not happy with, without that in our lives. And it doesn't matter how much other stuff we pursue. If we don't have the kind of relationships that bring us interpersonal joy, if you will, I think that a lot of that other stuff just is stuff. It just yeah. piles up and it doesn't ever get us anywhere. And I just want to riff on a little bit of a tangent here because you're talking about the tribal nature of humanity, which of course is very true. But of course, technology is essentially trying to detribalize people, which if, of course is a just biblical disaster in pretty much every form. So basically what happens is now people, they're neglecting all of their close connections and they're trying to foster a whole bunch of pretend connections over like mm -hmm. Instagram or wherever. And I'm almost wondering, do you think that there, can you foresee a, some sort of voluntary retribalization at some point in the future? Do you think Pandora's box is open and it's over? Or do you think the rubber band is, is going to snap back? That's a, such a great question. And I'm so glad you asked me that. I hadn't really ever considered it before. But what I think is that the way we define that tribalization is going mm -hmm. to evolve. So what being a member of a tribe really is not about a small group that all agrees with each other. It's about any group of any size where people are getting their needs met, where people are being able to express themselves and bring their unique gifts into the world. And they are being respected for that. There is mutual trust and respect across the board in relationships, regardless of the size of the group. That's what I think real tribe is about. And the older I get, the more clear I am that my real tribe is the people with whom I have that mutual trust and respect uh -huh. where we really see each other and where we're really, where we're working intentionally together to make a world that works for all of us. Yeah. Make it a world that works for everyone, I think is the new tribalism. Yeah, I think so. And because the thing that I think, again, from like a social anthropology perspective, 
is to say, okay, how can an idea like that scale out enough to where, not to sound too alarmist, but I like, you know, I think I was looking at a, at a global birth rate chart by region and pretty much like every, all of the upper middle and high income countries have a below replacement birth rate. Our populations are all trending towards zero, not literally, but essentially what's happening is people are so fractured out that not that many people are having kids anymore, at least not in the developed world. And so I'm a little terrified for what that means for the long-term social structure because population decline is not an amazing economic model. So we need a way to come back together to find- yeah, That's where I'm going with this yeah. new tribalism is the figuring out a way to come back together and to make families cool again, because families are just not cool, right? Exactly. So if you knew that in a family, you could be yourself and you would be acceptable for exactly who you are, even though you're different from everybody else. Uh -huh. If you knew you could identify what you wanted and get it. If you knew you would be listened to for your leadership vision and followed. If you knew all of those things as the definition of family, they might get a lot more popular. Yeah. All of but right. they're not that. They're not now. In a, for a lot of us, they are laboratories of no, don't be that. Don't think like that. Don't feel like that. Don't want that. That's not what you want to want. We don't well, want you to want that. We don't well, want you to be yeah. like that. And then, so then the question is become, okay, how do we bridge from where we are now to that future state? Because, and again, I'm completely hijacking the purpose of this conversation, but it's, I'm, I guess the, I've developed this thesis that I'm like, okay, there are very significant social political problems brewing and nobody appears to be the slightest bit concerned about it. And oh, not no. nobody literally, but nobody in charge seems to be the slightest <laughs> bit worried about it. Because I think really there are an awful lot of people worried about it and definition of who's in charge might be the problem. Yeah, <laughs> fair enough. And so I think that's... there are an awful lot of people who are worried about it and taking action. And one way to look at it is that there's this sort of subterranean energy brewing that's going to create a massive turnover, even though it's like the bottom of the pyramid is where all the stuff happens, not the. Yeah. And so we're all down here at the bottom, churning up a lot of really great ideas for reclaiming humanity's love for itself and each other and way to be connected in a way that makes life fruitful and productive for people. Uh-huh. And we will eventually overwhelm the people who aren't paying attention. Yeah. And like the thing that I almost wonder is because I, I think one of the things that's created the social phenomenon we have right now is the global technology revolution. Because in the old days, it's like what you would do is you would go to see a local band, right? There'd be a local band that was playing. It'd be fun. Whereas now, like every teenage girl in the entire country, the moment Taylor Swift re releases a new song goes crazy over it. It may or may not be any good. By the way, they're all basically the same. I try to explain this to my daughter. She's a rabid Taylor Swift fan. I explain this to my daughter. Sweetie, you understand they are all basically the same. She goes, I still like it. That, I, that's my point. That's my point. But anyway, I digress. But anyway, what ends up happening is I think you have these exponentially expanding winner take all effects where it's like if somebody is not even objectively at the top, even if they're just perceived to be at the top, that they won't just get, say, rewards that are like 1% higher, though not even 10x higher, 100x, 1000x, million x higher. And so you end up having this tremendous bifurcation where a really small people basically collect all of the rewards. And I think that is a fundamentally broken model. I think it's only a matter of time before that kind of thing implodes. And I just feels to me like 
that will be a very unhappy <laughs> reckoning. That'll be an unpopular implosion for sure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There will be a lot of property dis- destruction and probably an unfortunate amount of loss of life. Maybe. Yeah, and I just think that we can be afraid of that and we cannot do anything or we can keep doing the things that we think will make a difference. And, and eventually... And yes, I say plan B. I like plan B myself. I, I say plan B. Yeah, and I do think that the more, as I said, the more of us that keep doing the things mm-hmm. of relationship building that are about personal growth, and I personally, as I said, I started out working with children. Whole mm-hmm. career was with young children and their families. And what I learned very early is that 20 children at a time in a class, I can't make much of an impact. I only have them for a few hours a day. Yeah. But if I can spend my career talking to the adults who raise them and teach them, I can make a difference. Yeah. I... Because I am reaching more people and I'm changing intergenerationally. So when I talk to an adult audience, presumably your audience, I'm not only talking to them about themselves and their own personal development, but I'm talking to them about their parenting or I'm talking to them about the fact that they're a teacher or all three. Yeah. So I'm hitting the same message is hitting at different levels. And so they're thinking, how do I get my needs met? And how do I make sure my kid is getting her needs met? And because one of the things that I was thinking as we were talking a little bit is how, you know, it maybe it's time to make things like church congregations, rotary clubs, and community organizations cool again. I was actually just thinking, I'm like, I really need to get better at going to rotary on Wednesdays for that exact reason that it's easy to get enamored with the digital multitopia, but tribes are local. People that you see, they're local. Right. Three-dimensional people are good too. (laughs) Yes. Three-dimensional people are real. Because the thing is, real connectedness, that's really, you can stay connected digitally if you were connected locally at one point, but trying to be connected only digitally, I don't know if that's even possible. I think that's a very good question for us to be asking because I think that part of what makes digital connection work is the fact that it's been up until now based on real-time and body interaction. It's been the supplement and interpersonal in real-time in three dimensions has been the norm. Yeah. Over the past few years, that's gotten turned on its head a little bit. Uh huh. So for some of us, we are building relationships with people in a digital format that we've never met face to face. And we still have it three years later. Yeah, exactly. And because that's the thing is you can absorb a few of those kind of into your circle. But if that's your whole circle, what does that do? It doesn't feel like it ends up being that healthy. I agree. And so you're one of your jobs as a dad is to help your daughter see, yeah, sure, you can love all the Taylor Swift songs. Uh That's okay. There was a whole generation of adults who went mad for every single Barry Manilow song that came out, and they were all exactly the (laughs) same. You're dating yourself now. (laughs) I wasn't one of the Manilow fans, but I was aware of them. And so we can do those things. We can have those kinds of relationships with people we'll never know and admire the influencer. And where we get our real human needs met is not there. You can do that. That's fun. That's play. And to get to be a really terrific adult who lives a great life, you need to do this. Yeah. You need to do one-on-one, small group, get to know people. Yeah. I'm just like idea spitballing here. But another thing that I was just thinking is that I almost wonder whether too much wealth accumulation inhibits that process. You know, because, because look, okay, so what I'm thinking is I go, okay, look, you know, let's say you build out your business investment portfolio. Okay. Now you're worth say a hundred million bucks. 
and go, okay, your time is ridiculously valuable. Okay. I don't have time to go hang out with, to, to go just hang out with people in the community and listen to someone at Rotary or whatever. I've got stuff to go do. You, but what you almost end up doing is you almost end up unconsciously self-selecting into a cohort that can't meet your human needs. Mm. But I think a lot of people, myself included until recently, weren't self-aware enough to understand that. And that's why the success strategies are called self-aware success strategies, <laughs> because all of this revolves back around every time to, are you aware of yourself? Yeah. Are you aware of what you want and whether you're getting it? Are you aware of how you trust people? Are you aware of the fact that you're not playful or you are playful at how you play? That's do you see yourself? Yeah. I think is it's all, all boils down to in the end. Gotcha. If I have worked hard and made myself worth a hundred million dollars, what does that say about how I see myself? And am I seeing all of myself or am I just seeing myself through that one little portal of how much money I have? Yeah. And because I think one of the things that I've always tongue and cheekingly said is that I've always said the reason why you try to accumulate wealth is to be able to solve the problems that money can solve. Once you get there, now you have to wrestle with all the problems money can't solve. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Quite uh, a very good point. <laughs> and there are a lot of them. And see, that's the thing. I was a good Gen Xer. I grew up thinking that if you have enough money, everything's fine. No, that's not the case. Cause there are a lot of problems that money can't solve in any way, shape or form. And if you've been ignoring them for 45 years, <laughs> then this is where the late life existential crisis comes from. Exactly. exactly. And you mentioned when you were bringing in a scene about carrying forward the trauma and the, the psychoses of your childhood. And we do carry all of that experience. It is literally, as I said, it's wired into your brain. You get uh -huh. soulful of loose neurons and you put them together based on what happens to you. And so if you had trauma, if you had experiences that were really painful as a child, that's all in there still. And how are you going to become self-aware enough to live beyond that if you don't slow down a little bit and drop out of the warp speed of got to get more, got to have more? Yeah, I think that's really important reflection and introspection. I think, especially for me, because again, I'm fighting against my generationally in, in, ingrained hyperachievement desire, which there's nothing wrong with achievement. But again, if you're spinning so fast that you don't ever self-reflect, then you will eventually get to the point where all of the non-money questions haven't even been addressed. True. <laughs> this is, this has been a completely different conversation than I was expecting, but it's been outstanding. I both counts. All right. But before I ask you for your one or two last thoughts, let me ask, is there a question I should have asked you, but didn't? Oh, giving you a softball right over the plate. You could have asked me, is it really possible to do it all over again? Is it really possible Ooh. to remake? I want to know that now. <laughs> yeah. And I think yes. And I think I'm like one living book example. Are you familiar with the things called adverse childhood experiences? Sounds so, familiar, but I can't speak about it with any intelligence. The list of 10 things that have been documented by research to have such a debilitating effect on children that they actually affect not only mental and psychological health, but they can change your, literally change your physical makeup. People who've had these experiences are more likely to have cancer, heart disease, diabetes. They're more likely to use drugs and alcohol when they're adults, things like that. Okay. It's, it's three kinds of abuse, two kinds of neglect and five forms of family dysfunction, things like loss of a parent to death or divorce, a family member involved in the criminal system, mm -hmm. criminal enterprise in your home, or 
in prison, those kinds yeah. of things. Abuse, watching your one of your parents abuse the other one, things like that. So out of those 10, I had seven. And so as a child and teenager, my bet on a long life was not a good one. I didn't have a good score for going to last a long time, going to be resilient. But I also had some positive childhood yeah. experiences to balance it out. And so, yes, all of that has gotten redone, done over, over the course of therapeutic interventions, yeah. my own growth, work, development. So, yeah, the answer is from my experience and from the people that I know from my work, yes, we can do it over again. We really can. Oh, that's inspiring news. And I'll steal a little bit of thunder, I guess, but I think the big takeaway, at least that I've taken from the conversation is to make sure to slow yourself down enough to where you can do that. You can do that internal reflection, because even if you're working with a counselor or therapist, unless you do that self-reflection, you'll just be talking. Yeah, you'll just be wasting your hour in the on the couch. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. You'll just be paying for time that's not moving you forward. That's right. All right. Dr. Scott, give us one or two last thoughts and then let us know what your website is or where we can find you. Okay. I'd like to offer a free gift to everybody watching. Just send me an email with the name of this podcast in the subject line, carol at lcarolscott.com and then terminal value in the subject line. And I'll send you a little bookend. I have a 28-page PDF cover to cover. Mm that explains all of the self-aware success strategies, how they develop and how you can do a baseline assessment of how they're doing for you in your life. And my website is lcarolscott.com and all roads that lead there lead to elsewhere. I have great podcast recordings there and links to my YouTube page where I have a bunch of reels and shorts. So come and join the fun and do some development do-overs with me. Beautiful, beautiful. Dr. Scott, really appreciate your time. Thank you for having me very much. All right. Thank you for listening to the Terminal Value Podcast. To keep the conversation going, please join the Terminal Value community on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash groups slash Terminal Value Community and click join. Also, if you like this episode, please leave a review on iTunes or Spotify and make sure to subscribe. When you share it on your favorite social channel, be sure to tag me and tell me what you did or didn't like about the episode so I'll know what to create for you. I'm looking forward to hearing from you and I'll see you again on the next episode.